little squeeze of coffee and etc. and juice and snacks. Uh, thank you to Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church for hosting this and for providing the refreshments. Thank you, brothers and sisters. I'm going to pause just to take some time to seek God's heart in the prayer, and then we'll dive into our time for this next session. Heavenly Father, we are so eager and expectant, Lord, because you're such a great God, because you're sovereign, Lord, because your faith is known throughout all the earth, because you prove yourself to be worthy of our praise and our adoration, Lord, we come to you with great expectation, not only in the times, God, where we gather together, but where we draw near to you, hoping, believing that you will draw near to us, because you say you will. Lord, we see you and know you to be the only God, the great I am, Lord, compelling us to avail ourselves to surrender to your will, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, now help us as we praise you for the ways that you daily provide for us through your word. God, the ways that you provide for us in our homes, in our lives, and ways that require us as a result to thank you and to praise you all the more. Help us, God, to surrender to your truth as was just proclaimed. God, that it is you, it is your word that gives power. God, you are the substance, you are the goal, you are the hope, you are the anticipation. Help that truth to never grow faint. Help us to hold high and to exalt your word in a way where we'd be eager to see the ways that we fall short, God, and we would be confessional, even right now. The things that are on our hearts and minds, Lord, that are not of you, that were a part of us coming into this space this morning. The things that, that get in the way, that distract, God, we confess our indebtedness to you because of the cross and our lacking. Lord, we, even in this time right now, Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage, the wisdom, the strength to forgive others who have sinned against us. Lord, trying to remove all possible barriers so that we can hear from your word, that your spirit would bring the encouragement, the conviction, the education that we need from you, about you. God, that what is of me, what is of us as speakers, proclaimers, servants, slaves, that all of that will be pushed aside. That you would get down in the hearts of your people what you would desire Lord, from evil, the evil that is in our own hearts, our own flesh, Lord, the evil that imposes itself, trying to invite us to, in fleshly ways, partake in things that are not of you. Protect us. Our minds, our hearts, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, even at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Two options, and you have to make a choice about what is going to go on your permanent bio. The bio through which you are going to be invited to speak at an event. The bio through which you may gain access to your next chance to serve the Lord. Your bio. You know that quick bio that you just write up and you put your college in there. You put whatever seminary you went to. You put whatever events you spoke at, you put, if you spoke at a young adult event, or you put that high on the list, if, if the seminary that you went to was more reputable, or, or it was when you were there, <laughs> you, you put it higher on the list, if you worked, served the Lord and his bride in a context where it's known, people can Google search and find that church, or you, you're definitely going to put that church on there, so that goes on your bio. And then at the very end of your bio, you mention something that sounds like he's married with a kid or two and a puppy, and you love the Braves. What goes on your bio? I propose to you that the bio should be flipped. Should be flipped. And that the expansive narrative about why it is that people should buy your book 
The reason for which people should invite you to offer some truths about the holiness of God should be based on who you are and have been in Christ. Furthermore, who Christ has been in you. A, a, a brother's bio, a, a sister's bio ought to look like faithfully married. Humbly cherishing and nourishing his wife in Christ. Committed to a decade or two decades or three decades of raising his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Has been faithful to provide for his family, sacrificially doing what is required by God to be a provider for his family. And God's allowed them to live without debt. Praise the Lord. Amen. And he also wrote a book or two, spoke at a big conference or two, and lived in Kentucky. If I'm effective over the next 20 years, we'll switch it. If you listen to what God's word says, you at least have to consider it. The necessary implications for the church pastor search process based on Titus chapter 1. Paul writes to this brother to affirm him in his faith, to help him understand what's necessary as the next part of the work that God has established by his own power and might. Through Paul's humble service, and he lays this foundation first that is, is unretractable. You can't just move through. We have to use, if you've heard anything yet today, you have to use God's word for what it proclaims itself to be and not just push past to get to the favorite popular parts. We need to let all of God's word declare itself as necessary and important. Titus chapter 1 Verse 5 through 9 we know, but we don't get the foundation that's laid upon to help the readers of the letter from Paul to Titus to understand who Paul is saying he is and to understand who Paul is saying Titus was and who Paul is saying they were in Christ because of the gospel. Foundation for ministry Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and a hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The realities in which Paul identifies himself as a servant, as a slave, as a messenger, a carrier one who was entrusted with the goods of the gospel to help proclaim the mysteries of the gospel that both Jews and Gentiles alike could be drawn from their distant places or their proximal places to a place of salvation by the power of God and Christ. Paul, the servant of God and a messenger, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul distinctively notes that perhaps in this insertion of his definition of his Slavery, his servanthood to the purposes of Christ, he denotes maybe an Old Testament reference, maybe a bigger redemptive perspective of who it is that he was and what line of service he came in. He doesn't refer to himself in any other epistle in this way. Servant of God, the great God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the prophets, the God of our forefathers. I am a servant of he, I'm a slave of he, and as a result, redefined with every aspect of the fiber of my human existence. Servanthood, slavery, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, I've been postured in this way to be used by God, 
that as he proclaimed the gospel, that they would be confirmed in God's drawing them to himself and their knowledge of the truth, their knowledge of the truth, not just an ambiguous general expression of information that's factual, but a kind of truth that anchors itself in the redemptive narrative of who Christ is, a knowledge of the truth about who Jesus is. So often we see that kind of reference come up in the New Testament. It's not a generalized ideology of covering the truth of Scripture. It's a precise pointing to what he points to here. That's the text. Knowledge of the truth. Truth about what? That which accords with godliness. A truth that accords with godliness. Several times, just in these five verses, he talks to Titus about the hope of eternal life. With God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. At the proper time, manifested in this work through the preaching, which was I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in common faith in Christ, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. What is he preaching? What is the knowledge of the truth about? It's about eternal life. The hope that anchored them, the hope that unified them, that they were saved from the consequences of their own wickedness, escaping God's wrath by the power of Christ. But I want you to see this in verse 1. The knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. You'll have a difficult time finding a book of scripture that connects the two more inextricably than what happens here in Titus. Because when you normally think of the knowledge of the truth, or as the text goes on to communicate, when you normally think of sound doctrine, when you normally think of healthy doctrine, you think of the information that scripture proclaims that one must hold to in order to be in line with what's healthy. But notice how, especially in Titus, notice how it's coupled with godliness. Notice how the knowledge of the truth cannot be isolated as a truth unto itself, but it's coupled with godliness. It takes place at the end of verse 9. Then it may be able to give sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Contradict it, I would ask the question, how? How? One way that the sound truth is contradicted is by what is taught errantly, with error, with impurity. Another way that sound doctrine, healthy doctrine is contradicted, you go do the study yourself, but here's what you're going to find. You're going to find, as you go through the scriptures, the connectivity to false doctrine with unfaithful living. False doctrine with unfaithful living, so much so that you can't just isolate the message apart from the messenger. Let's pause, we'll come back to it. Promise made before the ages began, giving confidence about the hopefulness that's to be had in Christ, a kind of hopefulness that does not put to shame, a kind of hopefulness on a God who never lies, who does not waver back and forth, who does not have shadow. Verse three, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, Paul, a servant commanded by God to take the gospel work forward, and then he invites Titus more formidably, who he left in this town after all of the evangelistic work had taken place, after people had bowed down to Messiah, after people had learned to embrace the beauty and the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ, and, and in a context in which there was much false teaching, People coming against the truth of who Jesus said he was. Coming against the truth of the knowledge of Christ. We have to understand, remember, call ourselves back to, embrace, project, proclaim the foundation that is the gospel. It's easy to think about maybe when someone's starting a church plant. Maybe it's easy if someone's going on about the work of revitalization. But it's necessary as you see yourself, it's necessary as you see someone else, it's necessary as you have conversations 
Because something happens, I don't know what it is, I'm not that smart, I got, now you know, and the truth is out for sure on me, right? So you, you'll figure out pretty soon. I'm just not, not really that smart. It's not really that. So I got into college because of my 40 speed, uh, and I, shamelessly, uh, that, that's how I got my degree. You know, you get, hey, you got yours how you got yours, I got mine how I got mine, praise the Lord for it. And seminary, that didn't work. They were like, I don't care. You're going to need to be about the things of God. So praise the Lord to be able to go to seminary and then to go on with studies even after that. But as you, as you look at this text, there's something required that is increasingly consistent. It doesn't decrease. It doesn't go away from the beginning. I, I need the simplicity of the gospel to continue to be foundational to ministry because I don't have another plan. I don't. There isn't another hope. And, and I, I don't think that this is just an introduction. It's just a greeting. It's the means through which the rest of the text can be built upon. This gospel foundation, salvific, and then, and then comes an explanation. So there's a foundation of the ministry, which is the gospel. Paul anchors himself in it. He tethers himself to it. He wraps himself around with it. He defines his purpose. He defines his existence as connected to the commands of God upon him, the, the slavery that he is surrendered to, the unity that he has with the others that he's doing this proclamation work with, the faith that he has with the others. And then he moves on to help Titus understand to explain that a minister of the gospel, a minister of the gospel is explained to be this kind of person. Explained to be this kind of person. Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. This is why. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, foundation of the gospel then propels Paul to communicate what must be then an outworking of the gospel making someone new. What must be evident should be true for all Christians but there's no excuse for those who avail themselves to the role of overseer or pastor or elder. Required. Required then is this Gospel's foundation as an explanation of what a minister is to be. And you cannot decrease, you cannot quickly work through this list. You can't just use this as a moralistic explanation through which you can feel better about getting to the stuff that you really want to get to. We, we speed through this, and then, here, here, I gave this foundation earlier, so you you wouldn't be mad, so that you would know. I don't think I'm smarter than you. We're, we're the smart Christians are in the room. You guys know so much, and it's so wonderful. And as a result, what we're inclined to do culturally, we're inclined to really just look at verse nine. Sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound doctrine. Brother, brother, you just say it right. You just say it right, brother. You just do a back up to that person. podcast you can listen to, they're going to help you get your doctrine, just tighten it up, tighten it up. Brothers, if this passage says anything, that should be the smaller part of the discussion. Oh, uh, I know, too late, they already invited me, too late, too late. If this passage says anything, if First Timothy 3 says anything, is the word authoritative? What must be focused on? Why, when you go to an interview, do they just 
ask for a couple of references, and then grill you all about Dr. A, Dr. B, whatever, 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 whatever. What did you study under? Whatever, whatever, whatever. What did you preach on? Listen to your sermon. How do you preach? How do you preach? How do you preach? Verse 9, verse 9, verse 9, verse 9, verse 9, verse 9, verse 5 through 8. Next lesson. And brothers, that is why we have problems in the church. Because verse 5 through 8 are neglected. I'm going to give you some, I'm going to give you some phrases. Let's see, if, let's see if we agree. Well, he's not the greatest person, but he's a really great preacher. He's a little bit harsh, but the fruit of his ministry. Brothers, I'm not wrong. I'm not wrong. But we could be more right. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, what remained as a result of all of the gospel proclamation that had gone out and people surrendering to the goodness of Christ and what remained in the context of people falsely living, falsely teaching about the matters of God in Christ. So that's what remained, and it was to be put in order. What is going to help order come about is elders being appointed. The scriptures teach that they're appointed by the Holy Spirit the way that we can affirm it with our own mouths, with our own eyes, as Paul is inviting, is if they meet these qualifications, if they meet these qualifications. And it was so important that in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, after all this gospel ministry had gone out, and Paul, he, he, he went back, and he established elders in every town. And three cities that are listed there in Acts 14, 23. And go back and establish, it was a harder way. It would have been much easier for him to just go ahead and escape. He was already by the water, but he went back. After all this beautiful gospel ministry, he went back and established elders in every town. I would suggest, because that's how he knew that there would be an orderliness attributed to, afforded to the local establishments of the gospel work there. I, I was at a conference once. I will name the conference. I was there. I remember it was a long time ago. And I just remember hearing this, this brother talk about evangelism. And I love shepherding. I love discipleship. I think sometimes the things we love are birthed out of the gifts that maybe are a bit more prominent, especially at certain seasons of life. And so I just was so compelled to ask after this brother was talking about all of the gospel work that had taken place. It was an international ministry, some, I don't know, missions conference or something. And I, I, I was asking the question in naivety, and all I wanted to know was, what happened after all that? That's incredible. Praise the Lord. All those people... Praise the Lord, surrender to the gospel. And so what, what I think it sounded maybe like a challenge. I, th I think I was just unaware of how it could be received by him. But what he thought I was asking was, you were totally irresponsible. What did you do after you shared the gospel to help them follow all of the commandments of Christ and the Great Commission? He was like, that's not my job. He answered it strongly. He, he basically put me in my place. He was like, that's not my job. You sit down and quiet up, and you're all done. Last question for you. I was like, man, I'm not offended, but I really just want to know the answer to the question. Like, so, what are you going to do with all those people? It's amazing. He felt no sense of responsibility whatsoever about helping those people understand what had happened to them and why it had happened to them and what they ought to do next. And that there are these ways that God calls them to live in his strength, in his power. Elders set up in every town. I, I, I cannot help but believe that there's also a proximal necessity to the text. Elders in every town. Elders in every town. The towns then, I mean, you know, there's no digital technology. There's no telephone. So elders in that town, these are people they knew. These are people, this is important. People that they could affirm had what the next set of verses are about to describe. So there was some sort of proximal context where not only they were told that these would be elders for them, but that there was a way that they could affirm that these elders were living in a way that an elder ought to be living as described 
and the two most prominent passages that we know of, that they could affirm that the fruit of the Spirit was also at work in the service of the Lord. That, that, that's different than video church. That's different than I'm going to church on TV in my living room. I, I don't think the Bible would suggest anything like that being a church, a gathering of the saints under the care, and nobody likes this word, care, everyone likes that word, and authority of local elders. The Bible teaches so clearly, Hebrews 13, 17, that there is authority. Because there's so much responsibility that there's actual authority. Hebrews 13, 7, coming with the authority is the expectation that they'll live in a way that is exemplary. Hebrews 13, 7, look to, the, look to those who taught you the word of God. Look to them, look to them, look to them. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 1 Peter 5, elders are supposed to be an example. In Philippians chapter 3, there's this idea that nobody wants to talk about out loud where Paul says, follow and is imitating us. Somewhere over the last two decades, we have become enamored with a word called authenticity. It's authentic, that's authentic, that's real. So, so then people can, like, there, there's no sense of dignity, right? If you just walk in and flip flops and you got a, you know, nice patch, you got the look, and you just feel like you just woke up off the beach, just go preach. It's like, oh, that brother's authentic. And then, and then, and then authenticity gains the uh, a capacity and ability also to just be rampant with sin. Touch stands up. Yeah. I sin just like you all. Just literally, just however you just sinned before you got in here, I sin, the pastor would say, just like you. And so, uh, I feel like I can relate. Too much relating. <laughs> Stop preaching if you're sinning like that. You sin like that just before you preach. That's not good. That's not authentic. That's atrocious. That's terrible. Verse 5. In leading us into this expectation of anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, above reproach, stated more than once in this brief passage, above reproach, the idea that the brother carries on in a way of life, not that it is without sin, no, not that he is holy as Jesus is holy, but if there was sin, it was confessed. If there was sin, it was not only confessed, but it was also repented of. And repentance is often something greater than words, but it includes a sense of regularly living in Christ in a way where people would be unconcerned to know the Holy Spirit. It wouldn't disqualify them from the ministry. It wouldn't make them uncomfortable to sit down and receive biblical counseling from if he's got to counsel a husband and a wife the wife knew the whole truth about who he really was or thought or did in a given day or week, it wouldn't be uncomfortable. Above reproach. If someone were to ask, if someone were to say, hey, I, I heard that, uh, I, heard you're, uh, I heard you're a little bit greedy with money. I heard you're greedy because you love the money. You love the money, Pastor. You love it? To, to be above reproach in that way, as the scripture refers to greed, it would be to have a kind of contentment, to have a kind of giving heart have a, a desire to not keep as much as you can keep for yourself, that it would be incomprehensible that that would be a charge that could find weight in your world. And here's a way maybe that the, the search process could go. So you find out what that nice salary is for the pastor that you're trying to, or, or maybe it's you that is being in pursuit of the role. You find out what is that nice the cushion salary. Not like that you got a man and barely works, barely can feed the kids, but you got a man, he can feed the kids, he can see how they're going to make it to college. And maybe even through college. Okay, great. And here, here's, as, as elders, here's what you do. Say, you know what, we thought about it, and we know that this number right here totally takes care of all your needs, because you shared it already. But we're, we're going to you know what? We're going to throw in another fifteen grand, Another $15,000, and that would be a true test of a brother's greed. You already got everything you need, and you know you're going to be fine. You're going to take the extra... Okay, this is an example. Never mind. 
That ain't something that scares me, Then he was above reproach, the husband of one wife. This, I think, refers to not just the physical act of oneness, but uh, the spiritual, the emotional kind of oneness. Of course, then the physical oneness that is required. A one-woman man, a, a man that carries himself in a way where if he is married, he's devoted to one woman, and she knows it, and the other woman around his wife knows it. I'm going to call it like, I grew up in the world, and so Christian at a young age, but I don't know, by the time I was 12, I could define the word flirting, probably, right? And flirting is problematic right now. The joking, the internet, I would have heard that as flirting, inside jokes, Teasing with emotion, not just teasing, that's just mean, right? You don't do that with guys. You're, you're, you're pressing me right now like I'm going too far, but you don't do it with guys. You totally don't do that with guys. It would be uncomfortable. Like, yeah, I'm not going to stop doing that. Like, that's about it. I got you. But, but oh, <laughs> wife comes around, not so much. Like, oh, yeah, this is, this is Sally. Yeah, she's served at the church and everything. What does it mean to be a one woman man? Not, not just as it relates to infidelity in its proper, most proper nature, but with emotion, with affection, with what is supposed to be and what was promised to your bride at the day that you wed her. He said, everything for you and, and, and nothing for no one else, and I will give all to you. But before and during and after that commitment is made, this is different. And here's the thing. We have the responsibility to uphold what we believe is scripture standard. That the marriage bed would be held in honor by all. That's even people that aren't married. That, that, that there be a sense of sanctity. There be a sense of significance around what it means for a man to commit himself to a woman. To where you go to church and you meet with women and you're serving women in the church. And your wife knows that she has your everything. And there isn't a woman that is not her that's getting your affections in that. That, that's getting your care, your care. My wife is the only one that gets that kind of follow-up care and nurture. I could do it together with the sisters at church to serve a sister. But if, if, if she needs from me what I promise to only give to my wife, then it's not going to go well at some point anyway. Might as well communicate up front. Above approach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I, I don't believe that the husband of one wife requires once only marriage. I, I believe that if someone has been married before, I believe that the scriptures would then expect probably a more difficult journey to go through the work of affirming that the brother is still above reproach. Might have to, might have to check with an ex-wife. Might have to check with some, some, some adult kids in the past. Uh, to, to just affirm that his testimony is as it seems like it is. Because this is the work. This matters everything. If, if, you, if you have a brother who has some lacking of integrity, has some lacking of integrity, your greatest question isn't actually his doctrine. I'm not talking about the basics. I'm talking about the nuance and the fine elements of doctrine. If he's humble... He'll probably just tell you. Amen. If, if, he's, if he has deferred the spirit at the core of his life, he'll probably just be like, hey, you know what? I think as I realized when we preach you, Romans, I realized I was more here. I got the 9 and 11. I felt like the elders were there. You know what, brother? I don't want to be hurtful to the body. Maybe, maybe you two elders will preach through that because I could see that, that the church is maybe more here. I didn't see that when I first came, or maybe you didn't see it in me. Doesn't even have to, or you know what? I can see over these next six months. Let's go through the work of finding a brother that fits more long term. I don't have to be the guy, right? But if you get to that point and you have two problems, the fruit of the spirit's not evident. There isn't a gentleness. There's a quarrelsomeness, and you get to that point. Oh well, you, you know what happens next. Yeah, we all know those stories. Children are believers, 
I'm not open to the charge of debauchery. So we talked about marriage a bit. We're talking about children. I, I believe that the requirement and expectation as the text lays out that everything has been done that is possible to teach children the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers are supposed to teach their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The text gives a conjunction in it. Right? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I believe that conjunction is a segue to the answer for what it means to avoid leading them to anger. I think people think about the anger being the result of having been an angry dad. The text doesn't say that, though. That's the problem. I'm not saying it's a good idea to be an angry dad. But the text doesn't say that. The text says, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I believe the text is implying and communicating clearly that one of the ways that you will lead your kids to anger is to avoid and leave a void in your responsibility to teach them about God's truth, to teach them about God's grace, to teach them about God's mercy. To teach them about God's love. To teach them what it means to understand discipline in God's heart as a legitimate demonstration for his fatherhood to us. To, to avoid teaching them about what it means to be Titus 2, 11 and 12, trained by grace. To avoid ungodliness. You want to watch a kid that's upset? Here it is. Be a Christian. Christian dad, Christian father, Christian pastor, and don't fill in the gaps for your kid. Because you're still going to have the expectations. But if you were to take a job at Target next week, and they're like, okay, great, you're hired today, brother, you're hired today, and so you get your paycheck in two weeks, there's stuff to do, you stack the shelves, uh, do some bagging, and run the cashier. All right, I'll see you in two and a half weeks. You're like, ah, oh, I never did that before, can you just give me, like, how much time do you want me to spend on one or the other? I, you'll figure it out. This is Target, so, you know, like you've seen it, right? But this is the description of parenting. You gave them to the church. You put them around Jesus. You're pastoring. You're around Jesus. You hope it works out. And frustration, you didn't teach them, show them how. Because you still have the standard. They came home from school. They were in trouble. They were in trouble. You said what? You said that to your teacher? You know we taught you better than that. You kind of did, Dad. You kind of did, though. You kind of did. You kind of did. Because you kind of used a word that was kind of like the word I used. So I'm trying to figure out where I missed, where I missed. Children of believers, incline towards the faith because you've done your job faithfully, not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination. The fear that parents have for being helicopter parents or for being controlling. Somebody's going to control your kids. <laughs> When they're little, either you're going to tell them what is good, right, and true, or somebody else is going to tell them what's good, right, and true. Fill it up. Fill it up with example. Fill it up with truth. They're going to memorize something. They might as well, might as well memorize the book of the Bible. Otherwise, they're going to memorize all the stuff in Minecraft or all the stuff. Just ask them. They have it all. Do, 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 do. And we treat, we treat God and the world like, well, we don't want to, I don't want to overwhelm them. I don't want to force feed them. You force feed them Star Wars? Funny because it's true. You force feed them stats on the Cubs? Opportunity, opportunity. Bless them with the blessing of not being angered, not being frustrated that you didn't fill in the gaps. And look at the fruit that tends to come. Or, or at the very least, the ability to express your body that you lived above reproach and you did your job as fully and faithfully as you could and so there isn't any guilt to be laid at their feet because you did your job well. Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This idea that kids have the privilege, they have the blessing, they have the expectation of the, the Deuteronomy example of Living it and teaching it. Living it and teaching it. Verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Reminder, restatement. It must not be arrogant. Instead of being arrogant, instead of thinking highly of their thoughts, instead of um, thinking that they know so 
much or there. This is easy for some of us, not so easy for others. If you already know you're not smart, this is really easy. It's really easy. So I already know. I know what my ACT scores are, but I told you you'd be so uncomfortable. You might stop listening. But it's really easy to honestly get to a place of humility because I don't wake up thinking I know unless I know what God's word says. To be arrogant, I know what's right, I know what I know, I know instead of humble. I need help. Lord, I need your wisdom. As was quoted earlier, I can't do nothing. There's where you want to start. Can you do it apart from God? Can you be it apart from God? If you have any answers that fill in that space other than no chance or my only chance would be to do it in my own flesh, that's not the right answer. You're thinking too highly. You're your, your estimation, your esteem of yourself too greatly, Romans 12. Thinking of yourself more haughtily, more highly than you ought to, instead of with sober judgment. Like, sometimes it's good to carry a mirror. Carry a mirror. Because, you know, you get that, like, you get your best, and you walk out, but then you remember, like, the best. And you don't see, like, some of our noses are big. Our big nose. I don't see it. I don't see it. You see it. Right? Instead of thinking so highly of ourselves, Think with humility, Philippians chapter 2, not counting others less significant but more significant than ourselves, not counting like Christ's example, equality with God and things to be grasped, Psalm 131, talks about this humble interaction with God. I don't know what it is in us that tries to capture the Psalms, it tries to capture a part of Job, and tries to somehow put ourselves in a space where we gain the right to approach God with some kind of confident questioning. This popular movement of like, I, I get the right to ask awesome questions. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask. When you get to heaven, you're going to be bowed down on your face, basking in his holiness. And you're not going to have questions. I don't think you're going to have questions. I think those questions are not going to matter at all. Worship and adoration and new crap. I don't care. Whatever happened back, I'm not going to care about sports teams. I'm not going to care about hunting and fishing. I'm not going to care about marriage. is going to be back burner. Back burner. Kids, nope. Everyone, we talk about heaven like the gift of heaven is something that we had on earth. The gift of heaven is the Lord himself. He is the reward. And so to be in his presence is everything. Amen. Not arrogant, but humble. Not quick-tempered, but patient. Not quick-tempered, but patient. We override these like they don't matter, and then we get into elders meetings, and we find out some things that are a problem. And then our, our resolve is not to correct and rebuke. Our resolve is to go back and look at the bylaws and see how long I need to wait this brother out. <laughs> you know, or you only got six months left on your rotation and just wait this out. Just wait it out. Or, or they're trying to wait you out. Trying to wait you out because you're quick-tempered. And you're too, you're too responsive and you, you, you're too defensive to be quick-tempered instead of patient. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul urges, he urges those who would come after his example to look at those who are idle. They know what they ought to know in the Lord. And if they're idle, admonish them, exhort them, rebuke them. With truth. They're idle. They, you, you know the word, brother. You're, you're being lazy. I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. They've been trying. It's not as fruitful as it ought to be. They, they misunderstood what it meant to be a faithful father, and it's not going well. And so then you just got to keep encouraging them. Keep encouraging them. And then there's the weak. There's the weak. They didn't know that the Bible disaffirmed going out and getting drunk on the weekends. They didn't see that. They, didn't, they haven't seen that in person. They didn't know that the language that they used that's so profane, not, not only the, the corruptive nature of what they're saying, but to defame the name of God with their language. They didn't, they didn't see that. They maybe heard it once on like, because they trust in the church basketball league and someone was like, keep it down. They didn't know though that using God's name in vain was not a good thing. And so you read them what God's word is and they're like, oh, I never, I'm 
was telling you, I was discipling a couple. I'll never forget the look on this guy's face. He was talking about New Year's Eve. And he was like, man, I just haven't gotten, gotten drunk in so long. It's so good. And I can't wait to do it again in a couple weeks. And we weren't talking about that. We were talking about something else way more significant, honestly. And so he just kept celebrating it. And so I was like, hey, we'll try to get to this later. But let me just, let me just read. Give me a second. I didn't know. I didn't know. I probably shouldn't be doing that. I was like, yeah, we'll get to it later. Let's go. He's weak. He's weak. Help, help him. I guess my job was to help him. But what's interesting about how the text finishes there, First Thessalonians 5, 14, it says to be patient with them all. To be patient, long-suffering. Could just be kicking people out of the church because they didn't get it. Somewhere in seminary, I don't know, it was in the master's program, they were like, you meet with people three times past church and after that you cut them off. If people had done that with me, goodness gracious, three meetings and then put them out? What happened to patience? What happened to Colossians 1.28? Striving with all his strength to warn and admonish people in Christ. Got to be patient. Got to be patient. And some of you brothers that have done church revitalization, pray the Lord for you. Yeah. Patient with the Lord's bride as the Lord has been patient with you. Not a drunkard, but self-controlled around drinking. Not a drunkard, but self-controlled around drinking. People don't like to talk about it. What is the definition of drunkenness? I believe that the text in Ephesians describes a kind of drunkenness that, because it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit or being drunk. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. If the comparative nature of that verse is helpful for you like it is for me, you might start to think about drunkenness taking place well before you stumble. Because that's what we, 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 you know, we use the extremes when it's convenient and not so much when it's not, right? So, oh, drunkenness is, oh, I wasn't drunk, stumbling off the stage, blah, 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 blah. But to start to be influenced, I would even suggest comforted. <laughs> that's with the Holy Spirit, so don't be that with wine. Be that, whatever that was, with the Holy Spirit. Because if, if I'm wrong, then some equivalent would be something like being drunk with the Holy Spirit is this wild, charismatic presentation of, my, my grandmother is totally Pentecostal, and so she doesn't get why her grandbaby hasn't gotten the Holy Ghost yet, and so there's a version, there's a version of falling off the stage drunk that some people that are Pentecostal would be like, yeah, that's the equivalent. Now, you're not actually agreeing with that, most of you. I'm not agreeing with that. But in the way that we apply it to the idea of drunkenness, we do. To be influenced by the Holy Spirit, etc. By, by Jason, not violent but gentle. Not violent but gentle. With words, with our ways, with our attitudes, the the, the violence that sometimes comes out of us. You see brother pastors like this, and they, they get they get the pass if the ministry is quote unquote effective. They get the pass if the results come in, if the heads and noses, and the nickels and toeses come in. They just they just try to build people around them, put an associate pastor in that's compassionate. Just hope there's a buffer. Don't let anybody meet with them. Just. I will meet with the associate pastor. That would be better. Or we can let the scripture speak for itself. Not greedy for gain. I gave an example of that. But eager to give. Content with what we have. Realizing we don't live for this world. Realizing that there is contentment in Christ to be had. Philippians 4. There's contentment to be had. Whether we have plenty or that we have want. And the only way we can get there. Is to embrace the muchness of Christ. To have a belief and an understanding that Christ is everything for me in a way that you can't add to it. You can't take away from it. The inheritance that I have in Christ is so robust. I live out of it so richly. You cannot worsen my state of affairs and you cannot increase my state of affairs because Christ is my everything. And as a result, 
can't make me greedy for the things that this world says or this that will pass away anyway. Not greedy for gain, hospitable, hospitable, verse 8. Eager to share what God has given, eager, blessed to let strangers come in, to share what you have with them. This is a mark of a true Christian, says scripture. It's so heartbreaking to hear someone that's been in the church all of their adult life. And I say, you know, I've never been in a pastor's home before. How are they even supposed to look behind the curtain and see who you are? If they don't come in, they got to let them in. Lovers of good. A lover of good. There's a vast difference between being a lover of good and a rejoicer in evil. That's the opposite. To, to love good, to, to watch God do good in people that whether it's the church across the street or whether it's the I think our embrace is the sports world of competitive nature I mean I, I get it I'm a, historically a sports guy I gave up basketball too ruptured my Achilles tendon pop all done and, and it caused me for that little window of time I was in my 20s which they say this is happening in your 40s I don't know what happened for me, I thought I had a couple years to, but I just watched competition, and I watched the violence, I watched the selfish, I watched the rejoicing in evil, I was discipled to learn to rejoice in the good of another person, even if it's not going my way in that moment. You, you, you hit a jump shot on me, Eric, and I learned, I actually, I, there's a brother, I won't name him because he's not here, but there's a brother, taller brother, uh, looks like a third person from history, played basketball, and I was playing basketball with him in my 30s, I'm in my mid-40s now, and it was one of the last times I played. He was really good. And when he did really good things, I was like, that was a great shot. It was. Might encourage him. It's not gonna really make a difference. I can't do anything about it anyway. Might as well be some encouragement. That's like against the American rule. That's like against the golden rule of sports. You don't encourage that competitor. But what if your goal is different? What if you just love good so much you can't help yourself? What if it's so little about you and what you're giving or not giving that you just do it because it might bring some kind of a blessing to someone anyway? A lover of good, continuously selfless, self-controlled, not uncontrolled, self-controlled. The scriptures talk about the danger of lacking self-control, and this one is huge. A brother left without self-control is like a city left without walls. So vulnerable, so vulnerable to be broken into by anything or anyone at any time for any reason and absolutely destroyed and obliterated and everything could just be stolen from the core of your existence to be without self-control. But to think and believe that the fruit of the Spirit we can grow in, to, to, to think and believe that in our new creation selves, we don't have to succumb to the worldly ideology that because there's an every man's battle, I must fight, quote-unquote, and also lose. That there has to be a different way. That there has to be a chance for victory. There has to be an opportunity to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. There has to be. Otherwise, we preach a gospel that is of no earthly worth. And I believe the gospel is as powerful for salvation as it is for sanctification if we let His grace train us. Self-control, emotionally, physically, the ability to say no, to stop, irrational versus impulsiveness versus I can't help myself. You know, this this should be what a church conference is full of, by the way. There should be like 10 references. Ten, they'll listen to 10 sermons, but there should be 10 references instead. Is this man who God says he needs to be to be able to be the flock? Is he or is he not? And it's not condemnable, brothers, even if you're reading through these 
versus any of the ones that I'm actually, uh, I actually fall short. Not short like I just need to have like a month or a week, but I fall short in a way that this isn't good right now. The beauty of God's love and patience and graciousness with you is that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. To fall short is not to be condemned. To not be ready is not to be cursed. It's just a way then that you would need to rest on God's grace and to step back from the world for now. It would be better for you. It would be better for the flock. There's no risk in that. The risk is just, just go forward. I'll figure it out. I'll get there. Take care of your friends. This is when you know you're in danger zone. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, Pastor. Nobody's perfect. There's a vast difference between being faithful and healthy and broken. We all are broken. And being unprepared, walking in the flesh, not the spirit, trusting in yourself. That should be a greater fear than not being able to preach your perfect sermon on Romans 9 and 11. Your greater fear should be that you preach a great sermon right from Scripture that, that would make John MacArthur give you a call and ask you to speak at the next conference. Wow, praise the Lord, brother. That text was handled so well. Your greater fear should be to do that and to do it in your own strength. To be upright honest, fair, dignified. First Timothy 3 refers to a kind of dignity that ought to fill the pulpit, that ought to fill the role of the heart and life of an elder, to have a kind of dignity. Now, dignity is written off as prude or stuffy or something. To have a life that looks exemplary, to have a life that looks worthy of respect from kids, from people in the community. Here's what you're not doing. You're not going to the doctor to do surgery on your heart. That you show up to his office, he has flip-flops, and uh, you know, you don't want to know if he knows anybody's shaving kit ever. Right? I know it's all it's all religiosity, but I'm just saying, you, you go to the doctor and you meet a guy and you're like, ah, can I see, can I see some credentials? You, you dress like that all the time, you dress like that in surgery? I think there's a way in which we understand the people that we minister to and we respect the fact that there's a way to present ourselves to the flock as their servant where it includes a dignified presentation, upright. The text next says holy, set apart, devoted to the things of God, devoted to the things of God, a life set apart for his purposes. Now, the Bible talks about holiness coming out in two aspects, yeah? Now, there's a holiness that is given can't obtain that. Can't, that's a gift from God for the person of Christ, the righteous status in that we stand in because of what's been done for us by the work on the cross. Praise the Lord for that. But there's another holiness in the Bible that's talked about, one of the two, and it's the holiness that relates to how we're living. It's a holiness that depicts a life that's set apart for the purposes of God. It's a life that looks different than your neighbor. It's a life that chooses to take a vacation, but the way you take a vacation, the, the, the how and the why you do it, it's not just to enjoy more of the pleasures of the world. It's to create a space where you can more richly draw upon the mercies of God. For someone to say to you, to say to me, hey, brother, you get two weeks off. You can do whatever you want with it. In the life of a follower of Christ, it should look something like doing more with the Lord. Oh, I can get maybe Colossians chapter 1 and 2 memorized to give you that much time. Maybe I could do that one thing I want to do with my wife, that one thing I wanted to pray about, uh, what spiritual pursuit we want to have with our daughter, with our son. We, we have to get time to somehow, some way, our vacations, our entertainment looks just like those who are living for this world. It feels, it smells, it is just like those who have the aroma of death and are wasting. life of exemplary patterns of self-control spread out imperfectly. A life that looks as a race of choices and time and, and healthy and trustworthy. 
time to be done with the blind leading the blind. It could be done, time to be done with a sense of false authenticity. It could be a time where your bio changes. The scriptures are replete with examples of the difference between the way that we're inclined to think and the way that scripture would say, no, no, actually this is what it's supposed to look like. In the corporate world, in the marketplace, people teach that you can gain wisdom from anybody. You can read any book. You can read any book. And all truth is God's truth. We're created in the image of God. So go ahead and find some truth out there and then try to find a way to bend it and make it what scripture says. And you get wisdom, people would say, and then you Google and you find the three best ways or the five best and the seven best and the ten best ways to fix your church. You bring that into your elders, y'all fire it up. You're like, oh, I got this wisdom. I got this wisdom from, I mean, it's not, here's the quote. It's not the Bible, but it's like, oh, I don't want to hear it so much. But we step into it. We lean in. Like, well, let me see, let me see what's going on. Let me see, let me see. And then we wonder why the church is the way it is. But listen. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic, Demonic? Unspiritual? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And sometimes that's what elders meetings look like. Sometimes that's what a deacon meetings look like, looks like. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When you build your belief, your self, your life up in the truth of Scripture, when you allow the church to be built up in the proclamation of Scripture, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it causes you to figure out how to apply the Scripture in a way that everybody's not going to have the same conclusion, and it's going to be difficult. You're moving towards this place of peace, you're moving toward this place of blessing, even if it's not numeric, but it might show up in maturity of people's growth. It, it, even though you may not raise a lot of money, people may not give more right away or later, but you'll have a kind of alignment with the reality of the gospel that will be what God wants for his bride. And you'll have a, a kind of trust and dependence on him that makes the rest not matter. And then, and then we get to verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Hey, you guys came back from lunch on break, so this is not me right now. What's happening? It's not me. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that you may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There is the necessity to hold firm to the scriptures as they have been taught historically, to continue to make sure that my life is in line with the details of the doctrine, but doesn't require a gifting to fulfill the role. But people are looking for dynamic preachers, dynamic, and so you save your best sermon so that when you get the next opportunity to present yourself, you put that best one on there, that dynamic, that engaging one, that people where the, where the people just loved it or, oh, God, used the God. I was so scared of that when the church first started 12 years ago. I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Twitter, I'm too nerdy and or slow to figure all that stuff out. Nerdy like the other way. I'm, I'm like the nerd that wasn't smart. Like if you're a nerd and you're smart, it's going great. If you're a nerd and you're not, just pray for that brother, pray for people like us. We started the church, I didn't do all that stuff, we just prayed and we preached and shepherded. Prayed and preached and shepherded. And the, 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 the fear that I had at the beginning is that the church would be built on my namesake. So that people would come because they love football, or that people would come because my name sounds kind of fun. And so in the first meeting, I literally, I literally just read the scriptures that we were trying to build upon. Without passion, without exhortation, I just simply, it was like when you first have that young 
intern come read scripture for the first time in church, and he didn't know that you're not supposed to like make the word sound dead, because it's not. But that's our time. Get together. Well, here's what we believe God wants for his church. And I've read the verses. Anybody have any questions? God, I need a reminder of my own flesh. And I know how good it feels to be worshipped and adored for the wrong reasons and for the right reasons. It's always wrong. There's only one that's worthy of worship. There is no man that's so necessary to be put, installed in the role of elder or pastor that you cannot avoid passing him up. There won't be another. This one's so good. Have you heard him preach? Have you seen him disciple? Have you seen his gift of evangelism? Something else needs to fill the stat sheet of pastor elder qualifications, and this is what it is. No one should trust thriving head teachers with no license. No one should trust a fitness center instructor who's not fit. No one should trust a master chef who doesn't cook. You definitely shouldn't trust an IT guy that doesn't even have a computer. What you have to see in this passage as it extends itself, you look at the next chunk of scripture. The falsehood, the error, the problem, it's not just in what's taught. It's also in what's lived. It's very, very rare that when you see the scripture referring to a false teacher, look at Timothy's writings, look at Jude, look at 1 John. Character is as important, if not more important, than doctrine. And neither should be isolated apart from each other. Next time you do a church search for yourself, the next time you seek to affirm an elder or to install a pastor, the process is probably going to have to change if you let these scriptures drive the rest. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there is a need for people to be faithful to teaching the scriptures from the pulpit, in discipleship, in their own lives. We know that we must hold firm to the word as it has been written and proclaimed and taught over the centuries, Lord. We know that we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, and our soul. But we know that we must give careful attention to the study of your word. And you say, we ought to care for the flock and also our own selves. And you say that we ought to be examples to the flock. And you say that nobody is once made and always made an elder pastor. There's got to be space and room in the church, Lord.